This podcast is produced by students in the University of Pennsylvania's pre-health post-baccalaureate programs. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed belong solely to the podcast creators and our guests, and do not necessarily represent the views of pre-health programs. To find out how the University of Pennsylvania can help prepare you for health professional school, visit upenn.edu slash prehealth. Hello there, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Pen Pals, hearing Philly stories from a distance. I'm Dean Wirtz, and today we have Sarah Ray, professor in, or graduate student in teaching uh, history of medicine, and no one can introduce yourself better than you could, Sarah, so feel free to jump in. Hi, so I'm Sarah Ray. I'm a uh, seventh-year doctoral candidate in Penn's History and Sociology of uh, Science Department. So not, not technically a professor, but often, often called that by my students, um, uh, you know, for, for whatever reason. I kind of love it, but even though it's not technically true. But uh, yeah, just a doctoral candidate, and I've been teaching History of Medicine now for, I guess this is the third time. Gotcha. And could you tell us a little bit about, you know, just even prior stuff, like where did you grow up, uh, what schooling you did prior to Penn, uh, research that you've been involved in? Yeah, so I had kind of a, a long and winding path uh, to get to the history and uh, sociology of science department. Um, I'm originally from rural Maine, so out in like the western woods of Maine, um, you know, which I think has basically nothing to do with uh, ultimately where I ended up, except for that I really wanted to get out of the rural western woods of Maine. So ended up going to college in a city, which I was very grateful for. Went to the George Washington University down in D.C., uh, where I studied anthropology. And after that, spent about two and a half years in the Peace Corps. I was over in uh, southeastern Europe and came back from that really without uh, knowing necessarily exactly like what I wanted my future direction to be. Um, and then was just sort of despondently walking around the Field Museum in Chicago one day and was like, it occurred to me that like people work in museums and like that's a job that you can have. Uh, so I became really, really interested in pursuing a career in museums. I uh, went and got my master's degree in museum anthropology at Columbia. Uh, and then in, through that, uh, the issue that I became really interested in in the context of uh, museum studies was that of human remains kept in uh, medical museums. So uh, both the ethical issues around that, but really uh, what I landed on was, was the history of them. Like what's the sort of history of anatomical collecting? So that's what led me ultimately to apply to this program here at Penn, um, where I've been now for the past seven years, which uh, seems horrifying to admit to a wide audience. Well, you seem to be still enjoying it. So I'm glad that still it's enjoying it, yeah. going. Awesome. Um, so if we just want to talk also about your scope of realm of understanding, I understand that's more of a Western medical perspective. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, I mean, my my dissertation research is on um, is I, I'm a Europeanist, right? So I, m most of my dissertation is is focused in the Netherlands. Um, so I have a pretty good pretty good working uh, knowledge of Western medicine, especially uh, you know sort of between I guess the the 17th and the 19th centuries. Um, but yeah, like once you sort of go outside of Western medicine, um, you know, my expertise drops off. But luckily, uh, many many people's expertise. Um, you know, fill, fills that void. So we, you know, in the department have a lot of people that are just doing really excellent scholarship all around the world. Gotcha. And you were, you said the term was Europeanist. Is that like that, that scope of science? And then would it be like, what would you say someone for like Eastern Asia in that perspective? Yeah. I mean, like, so people, um, 
I mean, it's more of a regional specialty, right? So like, you know, for me, I, I just, I work on European medicine, so I don't even really work on, uh, you know, the United States that much. Um, mm. But people, you know, who work on East Asia, who work on South Asia, um, who work on South America, uh, who work on indigenous medicine tend to tend to sort of classify themselves um, either regionally or sort of with the specific populations uh, on whom their research is, is focused. Amazing. Okay, very cool. All right, so then... Let's just jump right into it then. So we discussed that it's mostly the 1700s forward about your, a good starting point for what a doctor has been perceived as or what exactly it is to be this medical practitioner. Yeah, I mean, obviously people have like been doing medicine forever, right? So even, you know, if we're just sort of limiting the conversation to um, European history, people, people have been treating ill people and people have been seeking to understand disease as far back as, as we have written records and, you know, obviously extending uh, prior to that point. So it's, it's always hard to find like where, where exactly should we jump into this question of like, you know, what is a doctor? Um, because it's something that, you know, even if not called by that term has, has been just sort of part of human culture for forever. Um, so then if we sort of like, you know, with that caveat, I think, ask the question, well, when did this sort of modern concept of a doctor, you know, the, the one that most of us, you know, you know, in the United States sort of have pop into our mind, when did that really start uh, to rise up? Then I think, yeah, you're starting to look at, um, you know, about 1700 uh, and really moving forward 19th century um, and then and then the 20th century to really formulate, you know, go from something that I think like most of us wouldn't necessarily recognize as, um, you know, someone that was you know, help actively helping our health um, to what we now uh, kind of would recognize walking into a hospital or walking into a doctor's office. Mm -hmm. And so what would you define then uh, in early 18th century? What, what was the doctor then? What did they look like? Um, so one of the big, uh, I guess the, the primary points of distinction is, is where they're practicing, right? So Nowadays, most, you know, you basically travel to the doctor, the patient goes to the doctor, whether that's at the hospital or whether that's at a physician's office. Um, and that was pretty unusual um, for, for really most of history up until um, kind of starting in the 19th century uh, is when that, that transition started happening. Pr prior to that, you know, the, the physician would come and visit you at your home, right? So you, you the patient, uh, basically the home was really like the site of most medical care. Um, and the physician would come to you. Your family members were also like understood to be a very important part of your sort of like health maintenance team. Um, but they were coming, you know, to your home to both like figure out what ails you and then to prescribe whatever treatments that they had available. So, and, th and this was many, many things, you know, they might have um, like herbal remedies, they might have tonics, um, they might be like prescribing you a regimen of exercise or rest. Um, so I think what's most unfamiliar to people um, looking back, I guess, is like, or I guess, you know, for, for modernized, when we look back and we, we maybe uh, see historical medicine as, you know, bizarre or out, you know, out of sync with what we expect, a lot of that is, um, feeling out of touch with like what they were telling you to do or what they were telling you to take. Um, so yeah, I would say like the big distinction is really like where, where care is happening, but also like the types of things that a doctor would prescribe in order to get your health back in order. Understood. And when you were talking about uh, going to them versus them coming to you in the past, that seems like that'd be a pretty high barrier of entry for an individual because they need to have a place for the doctor to come to right? They like to have suitable conditions. Was, was there a big, more of it having a doctor come to you was a luxury in a way? No, I mean, that was just the, the way that it was. I mean, people had, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, there were certainly unhoused people like kind of throughout history, but 
but by and large people you know had homes they didn't need to be glamorous for the physician to come and to come and treat them but these were also like hugely community-based practitioners right so it's not a physician who's like you know treating all of pennsylvania it's really someone that's local to your community that you've probably delivered you when you were born um you know and has treated you your entire life. Uh, so these are people that are really embedded in, in the community and are a part of that community um, and, and that community's health. You know, they're, they're an active member of it. And um, with that localization of the physician, um, what was the training like for them? Were they like protégés to a master physician that was getting on in years? Or like, was there this collective school in the 1700s or how did? Yeah, I mean, so medical education is like, you know, has also obviously like transformed a lot through history. And I think it's an interesting, um, I don't know, it's just kind of an interesting place to sit for a second in terms of think again, like thinking really about like, you know, when we think of a doctor, we think of someone that went to an accredited medical school and like graduated and got a diploma and went through like all of this really specific training. Whereas like all of that is very historical. And a lot of that is actually localized to like the early 20th century, the sort of consolidation of medical education into licensed schools, into schools that have like a very um, set curriculum. And that basically, you know, you, you can expect that no matter where your, your physician is graduated from in the United States, they've sort of followed the same general uh, educational pathway. That's a, that's a pretty recent thing in history. So um, going all the way back to, like, I guess, the, the earlier part of the period that we're discussing, um, you have sort of, two, so you do have like, you know, schools of medicine, right? Like you have um, universities where people are going to learn medicine. What that looks like is very different than what we have now. So, um, well, really, I mean, pr like for, for much of history, and then I would say like really this starts like it started disintegrating in like the middle of the 16th century, but really starts hardcore disintegrating at the beginning of the 18th. Um, if you were going to a university to learn medicine, and that was something that was quite privileged, right? Like you did have to have the means in order to afford um, a proper like university medical education. Um, you were going and you were essentially like learning the texts of the ancients, right? Or like you were learning like ancient Greek medicine, you were learning, um, you know, textual medicine that had, you know, arisen since then. You were reading actually quite a lot of uh, medicine that had been produced by Islamic scholars in like right around in like the, I guess, 10th to 13th century. Um, so, but it was a huge emphasis on like learning textual information and then like being able to reproduce that textual information in the form of like oral like oral examinations, right? Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of memorization, a lot of, um, yeah, just like sort of like regurgitating the, the things that you have read and that you've been told, as well as like some dissection. But by and large, what that looked like was that you as the student were watching a professor do the dissection and tell you what they were doing. You, you as a student uh, actually had very little hands-on access to, uh, to a corpse, right? Um, so as a result, when, you know, you were graduating from a university with a medical degree, that's the sort of education that you're being trained with. Um, and, you know, obviously, like one thing that my students always say is like, well, that's not any practical education. You know, like you can't really like graduate from being able to recite a book and like be able to, uh, you know, go forth and, and, and treat medicine or like, you know, and, sorry, and, and treat your patients. Um, and I do think that that's sort of like our, our sort of reaction when we hear that information. I'd also say that like, by like for a lot of people, right, for whom that barrier of entry was too great, people did learn through apprenticeships, people learned through, um, yeah, just more sort of like smaller community uh, localized means, um, mm -hmm. rather than like going off to the university, which often enabled you essentially to do the thing that like, you know, uh, 
privilege affords you, which is like to produce text and then like be remembered in history as like someone that wrote a great medical text. Um, those were people that could afford to, to go to university and do that, not necessarily people that were like out, you know, in the community doing, doing work and then saying, oh, based on my work in this community, this is my great medical text. Um, so that, you know, that shift takes um, hundreds and hundreds of years to really like, you know, go from one to the other. It happens uh, quite slowly. But yeah, like, in 1700, you're you're reading, you're memorizing, uh, you're regurgitating a lot of uh, information, and you're watching a lot of uh, people dissect bodies. That's mm -hmm. how you're learning. Yeah. Yeah, and active cadaver study is a relatively new practice in medical schooling, right? To just have like, cadavers on hand for active anatomy lessons mm -hmm. for students to take part in. That's pretty like fairly recent. Yeah, I mean, there's parts of it that are, right? Like, I mean, the sort of, again, I mean, like, it, it feels sort of, like, repetitive and boring to always be like, yes, but also, like, things were different in history. Like, I don't need to, need to tell you guys that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like, there are elements of, there are elements of, like, cadaver study that are super modern and super recent, and there are parts of it that are very old, right? Oh. So, dissection as a practice is introduced into medical education in the middle of the 16th century in this in the 1540s by a guy called Andreas Vesalius right who's um, down in Padua he's down in Italy um, and basically makes the case for like yes reading all of these ancient texts is extremely important and that's how we get really good um, theoretical knowledge but dissection and hands-on work is actually the way that we can then like verify whether or not like what the ancient said was correct right mm -hmm. so Vesalius is really when we get like the first infusion of dissection like this idea that dissection should really be a quite central part of medical education but that's not you know I think every student should have access to their own cadaver and like you know should just you know sort of freely dissect um, that was again the sort of introduction of this model whereby like students would watch a professor dissect because the professor as like the educated um, knowledgeable person had had the ability to sort of direct the eye um, and tell students what they they could expect to see um, and this was of course like quite it was is in large part also like an issue of access cadavers were not actually that easy to come by um and they were extremely difficult to preserve so um you know and there's you know many many theological concerns there's all sorts of concerns wrapped up with dissection that makes it like this was not a simple like off on switch like dissection just suddenly became accepted everywhere in a large part of medical education in this in the 1540s and said so that was the beginning of like what was a quite long prolonged and um you know i I guess like, yeah, a, a prolonged process of like integrating dissection meaningfully into medical education. Um, and yeah, I mean like probably in like the late 18th century is when, um, so like these, uh, these guys called the Hunter brothers over in London um, were running what's called a proprietary medical school, which is basically I am a physician and I am now running a medical school out of my house. You can pay me a fee and like be my student. Um, and, you know, but like anyone could, like my next door neighbor could also be a physician running a medical school out of their house. So there was this sort of rush to, um, you know, make your school more attractive and, and attract more paying students. And the Hunters, um, I, and someone can correct, someone can like hit me on Twitter and tell me that I'm, I'm wrong about this. Um, but the Hunters are the first people that I'm really familiar with that were like, we will promise that every student, every individual student has access to their own cadaver for dissection. Um, and that was like, whoa, like how is everyone else going to keep up with them? Like it was, it was such a pitch. Um, but, and, and of course, like the way that they were able to fulfill that was through, uh, 
was through grave robbing. Um, and so then, yeah, I mean, like basically as access to preserving corpses and like the sort of met like legalized pipeline of accessing corpses um, becomes better and theological concerns are like more and more allayed, um, you get to sort of what we have now, which is, yeah, like when you enter medical school, you have your, you have your cadaver. It's someone that you form a relationship with over the course of your, your anatomy classes. And like you keep the same cadaver, right? For like a hugely long period of time. It's not a, a mad dash to uh, to anatomize and dissect and see everything before, you know, decomposition takes its, its natural route. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot about the grave robbing and a lot of, I know a lot of serial killers were actually making a fair amount of their income prior by doing that, like H.H. H. Holmes in Chicago. And <laughs> no, I don't know how much, like, you know, maybe not a huge amount, but the, 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 certainly like they loom so large. I mean, they loom so large in the cultural imagination. There's, yeah, I mean, H.H. H. Holmes, I think it's just such a such a good one um and if if people have not read devil in the white city and are looking for a quarantine read uh that will like very much make them want to avoid crowds and stay inside this is a really good book for that um but also you know the, the very famous ones um burke and Hare over in edinburgh who were operating sort of in this early 19th century period of proprietary medical schools mm-hmm. and um they're like them getting captured because they were the ones that were like actively they, they were not like, so what most grave robbers were doing were basically like scouting out funerals, right? Um, and saying like, okay, like, you know, you know, Aunt Bessie died and we're going to go and like watch her funeral, wait for everyone to leave and then like just dig her up and bring her to John Hunter's school, um, you know, uh, whereas the Burke and Hare were sort of like uh, innovating on that theme by just like murdering people and then selling their bodies uh, to a medical professor at the University of Edinburgh. Um, so it's it's very hard not for those cases to just like loom loom large in our cultural imagination because they're just like it's it's such a confluence of of things that i think people love to read about yeah it's, it's very interesting psychology even just yeah. at, its, at its basis and the whole economic system around it's yeah insane. It, but the <laughs> that whole psychology lesson and uh history is a totally different conversation but um yeah and i have to say like i in teaching history of medicine i i just made this comment to my my students I guess last week, because um, we're we're just getting into the the body snatching stuff right now, and I feel like I even when I think that I am focusing more than I need to on body snatching, it's all they want to talk about. Like it's it's one of the subjects that they find just so compelling uh, in in the history of medicine. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I think people people are really captured by it. Their imaginations are really captured by it. I think it does like also really hit on hit on something that I think makes the history of medicine a really interesting subject for people, which is that it seems so at once like so bizarre, but also like quite, quite understandable. Like the logic of it is right there. Oh, you know, like we like dissection. Dissection is an important part of medical education. You need bodies for that. So like the, the logic that body snatching is in is like at once legible, but then the practice itself seems like out of a horror movie. And I think people are really captivated by that, by that tension. I think it's very interesting you bring up something like that because I think it's also the lack of understanding that makes it more intriguing, like with the mm-hmm. idea of like, let's just say in the early nineties, the satanic panic, like it was, yeah. everyone <laughs> was freaking out and like all these satanists, yeah. but they're just, yeah. they're just kids wearing makeup, hanging around the mall. Yeah. It's just, it's, <laughs> but it's the idea of the fear, the fear that yeah. all these bad things are happening so that when we see in history, sometimes those bad things did happen. So I think that like interest. Oh, yeah feeds yeah i mean they and it, and it did right i mean like the the thing about it is that i and i'm not sure if i just like said this or if i kind of put myself on a ramble but like burke and hair in large part is what like prompted the passage of um the anatomy act of 1832 right like so the british government saying okay this actually really needs to like 
we, we need to get a handle on this and legislate um, a legal pipeline for like giving medical schools access to bodies because this is really like getting, getting quite out of control. And that was in large part like a response to how outraged and like, yeah, like I think the satanic panic is like actually a really fun comparison to make because people like, you know, store or like, you know, proprietors were like creating all of these like wonderful little mechanisms to like deter body snatchers, right? To like mm -hmm. scare them off or to like, you know, fill a, the top of a coffin with gunpowder so it explodes and someone will run away. You know, part of that was in response to a very real thing that was happening, which was that, you know, grave robbers absolutely were going in and stealing bodies, but like the cultural hype of it really like put it put it to a level that eventually the government, you know, did kind of step in and say, we got to get this under control. Um, but in the last thing I'll say about that too uh, is that, I mean, what's true one of the like sort of truest takeaways to note about the history of body snatching, which is super fascinating, um, is that it's always there. It's always ultimately a story about inequalities, right? So mm -hmm. like, what why people were freaking out so hard in early nineteenth century Britain is that like this now suddenly became a threat to like middle class British families, whereas before it was just oh you know it's it's criminals or it's it's people that poor people that die in hospitals, they're the ones that are used. Uh, you know, for, for anatomization and dissection. So like, it wasn't really a pressing cultural issue. Um, but the minute that it started to threaten, you know, middle class British sensibility suddenly became like the most pressing legislative issue of the day. Um, you know, in, in the United States, we of course find that like poor people are, are targeted, but also African American cemeteries that had, you know, less access to like, you know, guards that would watch over the cemetery. Uh, they became real targets for body snatchers in the same way. So it, it's not just like a really fascinating practice. It's also one that uh, really highlights the type of inequalities that were, or like, yeah, like the way the inequalities were playing into uh, medical research and medical practice at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of medical practices, another thing before we got on a little, little sidetrack <laughs> was lovely, but uh, the idea of changing medicine. And yeah. uh, we spoke briefly through email about the transition of humoralism to uh, germ theory. And if you would be willing to just talk a little bit about what humoralism is yeah. and when it transitioned to what germ theory is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I love humoralism so much. Um, so I'll try, I'll try and make it both like simple and clear and not, not ranty, but essentially, so humoralism is, is the paradigm of health and disease that existed prior to germ theory. Um, and I, what I want to emphasize is that this, this system was in place for like over 2000 years. It is extremely long lasting system. Um, so again, this is like something I'm, I'm always trying to emphasize to my students. You know, we are sitting here in 2020. I'm going to describe humoralism to you. And, and I think it's very natural for us to be like, well, that doesn't make any sense. And like, you know, who would believe that? People believed it for 2000 years. No one believes something for 2000 years that doesn't show some effects, right? Or like doesn't show some efficacy in actually producing results. So, um, you know, I, I always tell my students to be responsible time travelers and to like leave the judgment at home. Um, so that said, humoralism at its, at its core is a very elegant, integrated system of health in the body and the environment, astrology, like all of these things just sort of into one neat little system. And so you have to kind of go into humoralism from the perspective of health and health and disease, you have four humors, right? And the humors are four vital fluids found within the body. And those are blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. And each one of us is born with a sort of natural proportion of, of all four of those, right? So we all tend towards one um, and just sort of have a natural, like our own personal natural balance of, of each of the four humors. So in this system, um, health is defined as those humors being at 
our natural balance. So this is a very individualized system, right? Like my humoral balance is very different from your humoral balance. Um, and both of us are healthy at those different balances. Um, whereas I would be ill if, if perhaps mine reflected yours and vice versa. So then disease is when your humors are, are pulled out of whack, right? So they, they go into a balance, you know, maybe I'm, I'm very sanguine, maybe, which means I have like quite a preponderance of blood. Uh, perhaps my like blood levels just get real high um, or they get real low. And then the, the purpose of the physician or like the physician's task is essentially to like figure out a, a, a treatment regimen to bring me back to my individual balance of the humors. So that's the sort of like overview. And again, like this is, so this is all very integrated into like environment and astrology and all these things. Really the, I think the easiest way to understand like what this looks like, cause like, you know, four vital fluids, like what does it mean for me to have a preponderance of blood? Probably the easiest way to understand that is that the humors are defined by each by two qualities, right? So I, like, I wish there was a visual aid for this, but if you can kind of imagine um, each of the humors at the corner of a square mm -hmm. on each of the flat sides of the square, there's a quality and, and that's hot, wet, dry, or um, what did I just say? Hot, hot, hot cold, wet, dry. right? So basically each humor has two qualities and each quality is shared by, by two humors. Blood is, is the humor that's defined by its hot and its wet qualities. So um, for instance, right now, I feel this very acutely because I'm here in Philadelphia and I feel lethargic and I feel ill and not very good because the weather is so hot and it's so wet. The humidity is really bringing me, it's exacerbating my natural condition of sanguinuity, right? Mm -hmm. um, so if I were to go to you, who's a, I've now just, uh, you know, you're now a humoral doctor, you would say, okay, well, you're too, like, your blood is getting out of control with the hot and the, and the humid weather. We're going to go to the other side of this humoral chart, and we're going to find things that are cold and dry and use those as a way to sort of bring you back into balance. Um, and so cold and dry things are associated with um, the humor of black bile um, or, or melancholy, right? Mm -hmm. So then, you know, you go to, like, what, um, A, like, can I, can I just go to a nice cold and dry environment? I don't know what that would be. I can't even think of a cold and dry environment right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, can I, can I change my environment? Can I change the environment of my home? Right. So mm -hmm. can I, um, you know, use air conditioning to bring the, the, the temperature down? Of course they don't have air conditioning back then. Um, but also like, you know, what foods are associated with, um, coldness and dryness and can I integrate those into my diet? Um, if, uh, you know, or like what, what drinks, right? So can I, can I incorporate drinks that sort of promote those qualities? So the way that treatment is done, it's like now we have a very like, you know, we have a very interventionist idea of treatment, right? Like it's give it pharmaceuticals, do surgery, like all of these things. The way that like a humoral physician is treating disease is through what are called the six non-naturals. And the six non-naturals are ambient air or environment, um, food and drink, exercise and rest, sleep and wakefulness, excretion and retention, and the passions. So essentially the physician is going and using and like making recommendations on how to alter those elements of your life in order to bring you back into balance. So again, like to look at sort of the opposite uh, or like, you know, kind of make assessments of what your humors need and then to figure out, you know, do I need to rest? Probably because exercise is going to make my blood even hotter. So like, why don't you rest and like kind of tone it down a bit? Mm -hmm. And what I really love about these six non-naturals is that again, like humoral medicine seems really illegible to us when we look back into the past, but all of these things are like still very much a part of how we understand to maintain our own health, mm -hmm. our own health, right? Um, like, you know, get sleep, change your environment, like change your diet or like, you know, drink more water, 
get like get some sleep you know stop getting so much sleep uh you know all of these things are like really really wrapped up and how we sort of have come to intuitively understand our health but we've kind of separated it from the pro like from institutional medicine itself um so the question was like how does that translate into into or i guess how does that transition into into germ theory so again like humoral medicine sticks around for like 2000 years not consistently like the reason it stays around for that long is because it's extraordinarily adaptable so every time like in the history of medicine you come across something that you're like that's going to be a death blow to the system it just isn't and like people find a way to really adapt it and bring it into the system again because it's so comprehensive and it's so elegant um like the elegance of the system is just something that I'm truly obsessed with. It's just so neat. So as a result, it takes quite a long time for like another paradigm of medicine to really like successfully bring humoralism down. So germ theory, and by, by germ theory, I mean not just like the identification of germs, right? Or the identification of like, you know, the, or like the idea of pathogens and things like uh, that. Yeah, but like really the, the comprehensive theory of medicine of which germs are at the center, right? Like the idea that like, no, we're not talking about like humors and balance and like vital fluids and all that. You know, we're talking about, um, you know, invisible pathogens that are responsible for disease. And like that is the sort of fundamental unit of our, of our medical system. Um, really takes place about, I, I would say like that transition really starts in like around 1840. And then over the span of 40 years, like gets more and more empirical evidence that together like Basically, you know, at this point, there's plenty of cracks in the humoral system. And like this 40-year period was just the accumulation of enough sort of particular types of evidence that, um, you know, these invisible entities called germs, right, or bacteria uh, were responsible for disease that by the late 1880s, we see essentially germ theory take over as the widely accepted uh, paradigm of disease. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was slow in getting there and it was also slow and it was not just this instantaneous moment of like, look, I looked through a microscope and saw a germ, like now it's germ theory. Um, you know, it was a process of figuring out what that meant for, I mean, like, again, like if you're sort of like coming into that discovery or, you know, that, um, those observations from a worldview that really didn't have a, a rational place for them, it took a great amount of time for, um, germs and the idea of a germ-based like theory of disease to be made sense of or like to be sort of like made into a larger like system that like was in internally cohesive I guess so that people could say like okay this isn't just one observation it's a whole system that together actually does sort of offer us a comprehensive like understanding of health and disease, but it was it was slow in getting there and and not instantaneous at all uh, in gaining traction. Interesting. And do you think that transition also affected kind of what how the doctor acted in the sense of I guess the only way I've been explained to this before mm -hmm. is kind of the the butcher mentality of you don't want when you pick up meats from a deli you don't want your butcher to be clean because they <laughs> look like they haven't been cutting the meats they yeah. look like they haven't been working and I understand that. In medicine, it used to be that you do the operation, you just yeah. rub it on the coat, and it looks <laughs> like you've been doing surgery all day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. There is like this funny aesthetics of it, right? Like, um, for for, and I I can't remember exactly like where where I've heard this or read this, so it's it's a bit nonspecific. But I do remember hearing a talk by someone that was discussing how like back and like I mean, also I I think I haven't mentioned this yet, but like surgeons prior to like 
1800 were actually like a very different class from physicians, right? Like they were, they were trained in guilds, they were laborers, right? Like they were, and like literally lower class than the physician who did not do anything internal, right? Mm -hmm. So certainly by germ theory, we have more of a confluence, I think, between those two classes, or there's not this like instant, like instantaneous like distinction necessarily Mm -hmm. between them in the way that uh, there had been prior. But yeah, it was like the stiffer, the like, you know, surgical code is, it just shows that it's like a well-worn Bible. It's like shows that it's being used. Right. Um, or like, I, I don't know why Bible just came but like well-worn text. It shows that you're really like using it and reading it. Um, so yeah, I mean both. So the answer to your question is both yes. And also no, like that too is like an interesting and very particular switch in that, um, you know, a guy called Joseph Lister, right. Who is coming around. Um, he's in, he's in, uh, the UK. I'm going to get his, his, uh, dates wrong. I want to say maybe 1860s and 1870s. Um, you know, he buys totally into, into germ theory. Um, but his, his like whole approach is, well, this, you know, this is great. All you have to do is like kill the germs and carbolic acid and like spraying carbolic acid on something is demonstrated to kill germs and to prevent infection. So it actually doesn't matter if I'm wearing the cleanest coat in the world, it doesn't matter if I'm wearing a blood encrusted surgical coat. It doesn't matter if I'm like rolling around in the mud. It doesn't matter where I'm doing surgery or what I'm doing as long as I have enough carbolic acid to like actively keep germs, like to kill any germs that like get into the wound. So he, he like really played that up and was quite, um, quite enthusiastic about like, yeah, I mean like we don't need to remain clean. We can just like be dirty and kill the germs. Like that's the sort of source of our surgical power. Um, I think perhaps like for a lot of reasons, the the premise of like really gross looking doctors, uh, you know, or like a doctor that looks like he's just going to spray a bunch of acid on you. And like, that's his sort of strategy. Uh, maybe it was not as effective as like what you find even about 10, 10 or 15 years later, which is doctors saying, well, why don't we just like demonstrate that the germs are not on us, right? So you see the the sort of introduction of white surgical um, garb, right? So you can see that there's not just like blood stains all over the place. Um, you see the introduction of more, yeah, like wearable technology basically to like keep the germs out, right? So with Lister, we have anti-sepsis. We have, I'm just, I'm anti the germs and like I'm killing them. Um, that and, th- and that's my strategy of keeping infection out to something called asepsis, right? Which is like, let's just not let the germs into the surgical theater in the first place. Um, yeah. And that's of course like, you know, the, the system that we, we still live with today is like keeping the surgical theater um, and keeping surgical clothes uh, clear of germs from the beginning. But yeah, I mean, I do sort of love that initial reaction of like, oh, great germs, let's just kill them and like, you know, do surgery wherever we want. It doesn't matter at all. But yeah, ultimately and very quickly, what, what you've just described became the prevailing uh, method. Yeah, I always love the conversation of being, oh, well, bleach is the best antibacterial, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. They'll all be dead. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I do, I, I just, I love the cavalierness of it. It's just, well, we discovered it. Like, you know, why not? Who, you know, who cares about, I don't know, just that to me is like very fun to imagine. Yeah, that's, it is, it is a very fascinating way about how we've gotten from where we were to where we are now. And I'd, I'd love to continue and have a different uh, conversation at a later date because I know you have a lot of other interesting things that you're involved with about uh, also monsters in the cabinet. Oh, yeah. A little bit about that. But what exactly is that? I mean, it's the, the like working title of my dissertation. So I work on the history of um, abnormal embryology, basically between the absurdly specific sounding years of 1697 and 1849. So uh, again, like I work mainly in the Netherlands with a museum um, called Museum Frolic, which is basically it, ultimately like, so if, you, if it's several hundred 
um, abnormal fetuses, in addition to like lots of other anatomical materials. So, um, you know, if you've been to the Mütter Museum here in Philadelphia, it's like that, but like the, the, the majority of the specimens are uh, fetuses with congenital abnormalities. So the, I guess, easiest way to summarize the dissertation is like, what is the deal with that? What, where did these bodies come from? Why were they being collected? And like, what purposes were they being used for? Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I'm, you know, not just knee deep in, but really eyeballs deep in uh, and have been for the past seven years. Absolutely. And is, does that have a lot to do with like comparative anatomy and looking at like, this is abnormal because this population of almost everyone in the world shows this phenotype, uh-huh. whereas this one does not? I mean, it, be, it becomes that, right? So this is one of the things I'm most interested in is basically this transition from, you know, at the beginning of my period, right? So like it, right around the turn of the 18th century, um, right around 1700, you have this sort of generalized term called monster, right? Mm. Which is a scientific term that just basically means anything that we can't, anything that doesn't clearly fit um, or outside of the ordinary course of nature. Um, but it was a very all-encompassing term, you know, in terms of like, you know, when you talk about a monster, you might be talking about, you know, bodies that look, uh, you know, a million different ways, um, or even things like comets or earthquakes were described as monstrous, right? To the very end of my period, at the middle of the 19th century, where you have this really, like, something that we recognize, right, which is an extremely diagnostic approach to congenital abnormality. It's, and, like, monster is not a word that anyone is using um, to describe, uh, you know, fetuses that are either, most minor, like, stillborn, right? Like, they're, they're not born, um, they're not viable, but it's a very diagnostic approach and a very anatomical approach to saying, like, based on the form, like the literal anatomical form of this body, we can make a medical diagnosis that it is of this type. And that does in a large, like, so comparative anatomy is very much a part of that story in terms of like making anatomy a real focal point of identifying differences between groups, right? So whether that's in the context of, um, as it was in comparative anatomy, like between species, um, but also in medicine, you find between like uh, like pathological anatomy, right? So there is something called pathological and something called normal. Um, that is also something that we, we really see pop up around the turn of the 19th century. So yeah, all of these threads, you know, along with embryology and developmental embryology, which, uh, you know, again, also comes up around the turn of the 19th century form uh, into the, what we see now, which is like this more diagnostic, diagnostic approach uh, to bodily abnormality. But. And that was the main study of, okay, I will say these wrongs. Uh, <laughs> the Putrin and Vrolik in the late 18th and early 19th century, because they were talking about something called non-conformities. Is that similar? Am I off? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Dupuytren is a, like kind of a... Um, I've kind of, I don't, I don't really focus on him too much. He has, he was the head physician at the Hotel Dieu uh, in Paris right around the turn, I think in the very earliest uh, decades of the 19th century. Um, Willem Froelich, who I think is, who you also just mentioned, is like the, the guy whose museum I study. Yeah, I mean, they were interested in, um, like Froelich called them misborningen in Dutch, which just like, it most closely translates to malformations. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he's, he's studying like the develop, like he's studying, he's a real like embryologist, right? Like he's studying, um, how do you use this new theory of developmental embryology to understand how uh, abnormalities come about in the process of development, which was was itself like such a novel idea at that point. I think it's one of those things that when we think about this subject from a modern perspective, it's like a bit weird to think that like developmental embryology is like a thing that just was sort of invented at some point, but it was. And, you know, like many of the things we've discussed so far in this interview, right? Like once you sort of, that that's not like, 
a light switch, right? That just says, okay, well now we're in developmental embryology land. It, it's something that requires this sort of wholesale reckoning with, mm-hmm. okay, well then like in this new paradigm of development where like beings go from like a clump of unformed like matter into like a highly organized being. Yeah. If we have to, if that, if like that's the sort of like time scale that we're talking about, then it completely transforms the way that we have to explain what abnormality is, where it develops, or like you know where it happens, and then what it means. Um, so those are the questions that I'm really, really interested in. It's like I'm, I kind of bop all around Europe, but but most of it is like through this collection of of Willem Froelich. Because I'm very interested. I mean, I came again as as I told you, like came to this from museum studies. So I'm really interested in like how did the actual like material collections themselves, right, of, of fetuses? How did Willem's ability to collect hundreds of fetuses and compare them and dissect them, how did that facilitate this, like, di- this creation of a diagnostic approach to abnormality um, that was unavailable in an earlier period? I think that's beautifully poetic. The idea that the concept of a monster is, is it, it dies as we look closer. Like, just saying yeah. something is a monster, that whole concept is destroyed based off of looking a little bit closer, understanding things a little bit better. And I think that's, that is, do you think that it just, in stillbirth, did, do you think the concept was that it just happened right there or people weren't thinking about the whole development of the egg and sperm coming together and someone, somewhere, somewhere in those nine months, something went left? But like prior to developmental embryology? Yes. Um, yeah. So, um, the the paradigm of like the prevailing paradigm of embryology not for like all of history but really for like the hundred years prior to this so i would say like from the middle of the 17th century so like comfortably 1650 till about 1770 we'll say um was something called preformation mm-hmm. and the the premise of preformation um is essentially that um at the moment of create like biblical creation every future living being was created at the same time and law like basically are nested inside of the like egg of the woman in like increasingly miniaturized but full form right so that like i as a woman like my eggs hold the like future generations not just of like my child but like of any child that is ever born of my line right mm. um so people are usually like what you know what you know it, it, it preformation is like wonderful and wild but like the the key premise for me there is that like god created all beings perfectly in the egg right so then the question is well then what causes abnormality if when i become pregnant it's just a little process of like this itty bitty fetus that is you know ancient growing into like you know it's kind of like a sea monkey right it goes from itty bitty tiny to like fully fully grown fetus um but like all of its parts are originally there then what causes it to you know for instance uh, develop cyclopia or to become a conjoined twin um or like any number of sort of like major developmental abnormalities that would result in stillbirth and that's where i mean the the prevailing idea for um for that was essentially that like the maternal body and the maternal mind were extremely powerful, right? Mm -hmm. So that the thoughts of a woman um, or her like emotional state could be directly translated onto the body of a child. Um, So that's why like I I read um, or like I've read, I think every single account of a monstrous birth from the philosophical transactions of uh, London's Royal Societies 
for like 200 years. And this is something you, if, if you want an afternoon activity, you too can do and become super depressed because it's actually quite depressing. Uh, but they're all online and they're like all articleized. So if you want to just go and read like old fun science, you can just go to the uh, Royal Society's website and do that. But these accounts of uh, monstrous birds in like the early 18th century would essentially be like, you know, and these are coming from physicians. These are coming from like, you know, good country doctors who are going to report on a birth and saying, oh, you know, like the woman had a child that, you know, had hair and like the face of an ape. And the woman reported that she had been to a, a traveling fair and like seen apes dancing. And it was like really fascinating to her case closed. Um, so they were looking for these like really contextualized moments that they then said, and that was the moment that like the, the child transformed. So there was a moment sort of like in the course of pregnancy that the body of the child changed. And it was usually, I mean, it could either be the result of like the mother's like mind and her like imagination, or it could be the result of injury, right? So like women that got sick or women that were uh, injured in some way, um, were like that that could also account for the abnormality but yeah the the mind was an extremely like it was a tool that was capable of of molding material um yeah and th and that's i mean by the time you get one of my one of my like rants that i constantly am going on to people is that like we're so judgy of maternal impression historically we're like oh that was one of those weird things that people believed back then but like we still sort of believe it like a lot of like you know studies on maternal stress and its impact on fetuses or like, you know, a mother's, you know, behavior, a mother, like all of these decisions by mothers are still thought to be very important to the development of the fetus. It's just couched in differently scientific terms, right? So I think it's still something that like, even if the science of it has changed, um, we still have a lot of buy-in to. Um, but yeah, that, that, that changes to its more modern form that focuses much more on like illness and injury and like, you know, substance use. Yeah. Like those things become more the focus of like, uh, you know, maternal impression or like the, the, the ability of the mother to influence the body of her child in like the 19th century, but in the 18th century, yeah, you know, you had, you had to really guard your mind. Um, and you know, if you saw a scary goat while out on a walk, better, better watch out. <laughs> your kid will be scary. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Awesome. Well, I think that's a good place as any to, call this interview an end this was thank you so much sarah this was incredibly yeah. informative and very interesting and yeah uh, well thank you for having me and to any students out there looking for more history of medicine do come stop by the history and sociology of science department we've got tons of fun and very interesting classes so we'd love to see you i loved the plug excellent <laughs> um yes this has been dean works with pen pals again bringing philly stories to you from a distance uh, thank you for going on this journey with us and uh, have a great week.